Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. J.J., it is the last podcast of the I year. I know. That's crazy. 52 of them we did. Really? Do you remember them? <laughs> Every single one. <laughs> I don't remember any of them, and I don't know why. That's not true. I, remember, I bet you do. Yeah, we were actually just talking the other day, because Susie, one uh-huh. of our producers here at the podcast, mm-hmm. was in tears listening to past episodes. Of the finding that I say when not we start really. Off. It was more our guests. Oh. Yeah, we mm. sort of forgot that you were on the show. <laughs> That's a joke. We always remember. Actually, your fandom is getting really, really big. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that. It's concerning me. <laughs> I think we're putting a lot on you as a brand. I don't think you have to worry about it at all. I think we could have a revenue stream where you just sell t-shirts with your face on well, them. Well, you did put the shimmy online. Oh, which, if you haven't gone, storybrand.com slash shimmy. Yeah. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, JJ does a shimmy at storybrand.com slash shimmy. And I don't know how to spell shimmy, but that's where it is. But it's there. And you can go Google find it. That this was is our the best 2018. Of. Yeah. That, was, yeah, that was the highlight of 2018 for me. Yeah. This is the best of episode. Yeah. Where we play clips uh-huh. of the favorite episode of the year. Yep. And it's sort of like a, uh, you know, if you didn't attend class. Here's it's the highlights. The, yeah, it's yeah. kind of the Reader's Cliff Digest. B- yeah, before the test, which mm-hmm. happens January 1. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. send out a test. And so if you want to pass the test, you got to listen to this episode. Yeah. But on this episode, we have Daniel Pink, Dan Heath, Rachel Hollis, who, by the way, she came on our podcast and her book went to number one on Amazon. Really? For like a year. I love that. Good yeah. for her. Couldn't happen to a better person. I don't think we were necessarily yeah, the reason. Part of that. Yeah. We yeah. just coincided. But hey, we will ride that train. It makes us look good. <laughs> I know. That's so cool. Rachel for her. Hollis, Patrick Lincioni, uh-huh. one of the greatest we human all beings. Love. Yeah. Yep. Tim Arnold, our very own facilitator, yes. Tim Arnold, lives in Canada, wrote a book called The Power of Healthy Tension. But that was one of the most fascinating conversations yeah. of the year. Kind of a shock. We still refer to it in the office all the time. Yeah. Ron Clark, Vanessa Van Edwards, who taught us uh, where to stand at a wedding yep. reception. Yep. Well, that, that's really more about like how to make good impressions yeah. and things like that. But Which you still use. I, I still s- see you use your hands. That's right. I put both hands up. She when taught me. When you walk me, on stage. When you meet somebody, there put both no hands up. There are no weapons here. I've got no gun. You'll understand later. Joey Coleman, author of Never Lose a Customer Again, yep. Michael Bungay-Stainer, author of The Coaching Habit, and Jesse Cole, our favorite. Yes, the You banana. think he's our favorite? He's got to be up there. At least like in person, I, I adore him. Yeah. He, he like inspires and is so fun. See, you do remember the podcast. I you do. joke that you didn't remember. You well, remember I, uh, all these. Susie also gave me notes. Yeah, <laughs> but you also remember because I know you apply a lot of this every day. We talk about these every day. We do. Yeah, it's a bit of an MBA, yeah. this podcast, which I'm proud of that. Yeah. People love it. And I hope you guys like it too. This is the best of 2018. Folks, we are going into 2019. We will never get 2018 back. No, no. <laughs> You're getting very philosophical. <laughs> and uh, it's over, and I hope you made the best of it. Do you think you had a good 2018? I had a great... Was it all you wanted to I be at the beginning? I don't know why I'm laughing. Yeah, it... <laughs> Because you can't. It's just I a philosophical truth. Yes. You can't get it back. No, As Jay-Z says, you, you can't, can't bring the future back. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. Carter. Um, I had a great 2018. It you really did? was an amazing Highlight year. for you personally. Highlight for 2018, I ended up going on a driving tour through France that was pretty unbelievable. And wow. Just spending a few days like driving around in a convertible Mini Cooper, and mm. it was magical. And then I ate at my first Michelin star restaurant 
and then the next day ate at McDonald's within 24 hours. <laughs> so that's the kind of person. <laughs> the highs and lows of Michelin the life of JJ. and McDonald's really sums up my life. <laughs> yes, who've been avoided by the Michelin Association? Yeah, yeah. McDonald's. What about you? What was your highlight for 2018? The, literally recording this with you. Aww. Didn't go to France. Oh, that's what we I, did go to France, can but we, I didn't. Can we cut what I said and redo it? No. That, oh. The reason I'm saying this is to make you feel bad. <laughs> well, on the air, it's not working. We had a fun year. We're building a house, and that's been very fun. Yeah. The company exploded on us. Yeah, it was it's, so fun. It exploded. We started the year with, what, eight employees, maybe? Eight Seven, I think. Seven, yeah. and now we're at 15 or 16. Yeah. We've already got plans to add at least six more yeah. this year. And the family just keeps getting bigger. Yeah. I really think the highlight of my year might have been the Christmas party. The Christmas party. Because we had two hours of toast. Yes. I was bawling through the entire thing. <laughs> it was really, I don't know what's going on here, but it's kind it of special. really special. Super fun. And of course, we wouldn't be able to do it without you guys. Yeah. People listening and, and buying our products and funding the whole operation. Yeah. Uh, we're just grateful for that. So hopefully you had a terrific 2018 too. 2019. I've never worked harder or been more excited at planning a year. Oh, I know. I think it's been two and a half months yeah. that I've been planning 2019 yeah, for the whole team. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. And we have, I'll just seed this, we have a product coming out. Hopefully it's out first quarter. The MVP, the minimum viable product is going to be out uh, February 1. And we're going to test it in-house for a while. It's groundbreaking. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's so fun. There's nothing Great. like it on the market. And... Your company will never be the same. Yeah. After you discover what this is, and it's I can't wait. It's for incredibly cost effective, and uh, it's going to be nuts. But for now, let's celebrate all that we did in 2018. Yeah. Let's go down memory lane. Yeah. We're going to play the best parts of the best interviews from all of 2018, and the first one is with Daniel Pink. And you know Daniel Pink. Yeah. He's the best-selling author of roughly 75 books. Yes. <laughs> he lives on the New York Times bestsellers yeah. list. And his new book was called Win. The book that came out this year was called Win. And it's actually a fascinating study on whether you are more productive at certain tasks depending on when you do them. Yeah. So today in the mail, uh, my assistant sent me something that I sent her to create. And it's a laminated card that says on it, morning ritual. And there are nine things I need to do every morning. Yeah. And then another laminated card that says evening ritual. And there are, I think, six things I need to do in the evenings. And what I'm doing is I'm, rather than trusting myself just to go to bed on time and all that kind of stuff, I actually have a post-flight and pre-flight checklist yeah, for the ritual. day to, to get my day started the right way and end it the right way. And a lot of it, I think, comes from Daniel Pink's research yeah. that you need to do certain things at certain times to be more productive. So here's the first of 10 clips. This is the first one. So we're going to move quickly through these. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be sitting in the driveway at your New Year's Eve party listening to the rest. But here's Daniel Pink on the importance of when to do things. You know, all your listeners have heard of circadian rhythms. And it turns out that circadian rhythms are one factor in shaping what amounts to a hidden pattern of the day. That is, all times of day are not created equal for doing our work. There is this regular predictable pattern of the day. And one of the challenges for being more productive, more creative is to match what you're doing to the proper time of day. That can make a huge difference in people's productivity and their creativity. Well, talk to me about that because you actually talk about, you know, beginnings, endings, and in-betweens, but you also unpack the microcosm of a day. You know, I'm a big believer, not super great at it, but I am a big believer about 5.30 a.m. I need to be stirring because I get more done before 9 a.m. than probably the rest of the day. Is there a scientific reason for that? 
There could be very easily. So let me unpack this. So there are sort of three elements in figuring out the proper mix of the day. One of them is what's called somebody's chronotype, which is basically, are you a morning person or an evening person? And there's some very simple ways to measure that. But what you see out there in the distribution of these kinds of types is that about 14% of people are, and it sounds like you are one, pretty strong morning people, larks. You got about 20% of people who are pretty strong evening people. That is, they go to sleep a little later, they wake up a little bit later. All of France. Yeah. They reach their, <laughs> and teenagers, they and reach teenagers. their you know, highest energy levels later in the day. And then a lot of us, people like me, are kind of in the middle. It sounds like you're a morning person. Typically, your day will follow this particular pattern, a peak, a trough, a rebound. And all of our days are divided into those three stages. But for you as a morning person, it's that order. The peak's going to come early. The peak is going to come early. It's going to be in the morning. And that's the time when you and most people are better off doing what we can think of as analytic tasks, writing that report, analyzing that financial statement. Now, the next stage is the trough. That's the early to mid-afternoon. That's not good for very much for anybody. And so that's a better time to do your administrative things, answer emails, fill out your TPS reports. And then the third stage is what's called the rebound, where your mood and your performance goes back up. What's interesting is that that period, we tend to be better at more creative kinds of tasks, less of the kind of lockdown, heads down tasks, but more of the creative kinds of tasks. I feel that as you say it. I really do. I feel that. I mean, I feel like before 9 a.m., I'm going to get a lot done. But if I wake up a little later, before 11 a.m., I'm going to get most of my work done. Right after I eat lunch, there's a two to three hour period of like, I really don't want to be doing this. I really want to be going for a walk. That's when I walk the dogs or whatever. And then I start thinking creatively later in the day. That's really crazy. That's really true. What's interesting about that is that, and these are relatively predictable rhythms, and we can unpack it just a little bit. So when we're in our peak period, again, for people like you and me, it's the mornings. For you know night owls, it's much later in the day. We tend to be very vigilant. That's one of the key words there is vigilant. We can keep out distractions. Later in the day, even though we're you know, alert again, we're alert but not as vigilant. And the interesting thing here is that when you're doing the lockdown, heads down work, you want to be vigilant. You don't want any distractions. When you're doing creative stuff, you actually want to be a little looser. If you're doing brainstorming, you don't want to be so vigilant and reject every idea that comes in. The key here is what social psychologists call the synchrony effect, which is to match up, like, what's your type? Are you an owl, a lark in between? What's your task? Is it analytic work? administrative work or creative work? And what's your time? Is it early in the day, middle of the day, or late in the day? And it's not like this is going to guarantee you're going to become some kind of superstar. But what the research shows is that time of day explains about 20% of the variance in human performance on these kinds of cognitive tasks. So it, it doesn't mean timing is everything, as people like to say. But it does mean it's a big thing. Timing's a lot. Yeah, exactly. We can eke out more productivity, more creativity if we begin to restructure our schedule to the extent we're able to do that around some of the science. All right, very interesting. Yeah. Changes when we do things. Uh, If you want to listen to that full episode, it's episode 78. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do it. But episode 78 is the full interview with Daniel Pink. Just so happens, episode 79 is our next clip 
Dan Heath. Yes. And when Dan and I talked, we discovered that we almost went to the same high school. He literally went to the next high school over in Houston. And that was sort of shocking. But he wrote a book called The Power of Moments, he and his brother. And he talks about the importance of creating high point moments for your customers. And we know from Jay Bear's work, it increases the talkability of what you do. He shares an example from a hotel in LA that I just thought was fascinating. Here's Dan Heath on creating moments. Can you talk about how to create moments of elevation in the products and the solutions that we deliver? Yeah, I think this is an absolutely critical part of the book's message. And I want to start with a story that I think kind of captures in a nutshell where we're going. There's this hotel in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle. I suspect most of the people listening have not been to the Magic Castle. And so I want you to just freeze in your mind your mental image of the place that comes up when I say the Magic Castle Hotel. And then I want to tell you that the actual Magic Castle Hotel looks nothing like that thing that's in your brain right now. It is neither a castle nor is it particularly magical looking. It looks like what it is, which is an apartment complex from the 1950s that was converted into what's effectively a motel, painted bright yellow. The rooms are totally average, kind of like a Holiday Inn Express level of luxury. The lobby is very average. The courtyard looks like the courtyard of a 1950s era apartment complex. And let me add a fact to this mental picture that I'm painting. And the fact is that on TripAdvisor, if you go look it up right now, the Magic Castle is the number two rated hotel in all of Los Angeles. It outranks the Ritz-Carlton. It outranks the Four Seasons. And so the obvious question here is how in the world could that be true? The Magic Castle has figured out that moments are key to the experience that customers have. So let me just tell you about one of those moments by the pool, which again is about the size of like your neighbor's backyard pool, nothing remarkable. By the wall near the pool, there is a cherry red phone mounted, a little bit mysterious. If you pick up the phone, somebody answers, popsicle hotline, may I help you? (laughs) And they will bring out cherry, grape, orange popsicles right there to you at poolside, presented on a silver tray by someone wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. And again and again and again at the Magic Castle, they conjure these kind of incredible moments out of thin air. And to your point, you know, when people go home and they look back on their vacation, three months later, do they care that the decor in the rooms wasn't that fancy? No. Do they care that the grounds were not lavish and, you know, well manicured? No. But are they telling people, hey, you're not going to believe this. There was a phone by the pool. It was called the Popsicle Hotline and blah, blah, blah. The moment stands above the rest. And so to the point of the research that you alluded to earlier, what we know from studying the way people remember experiences is that the reality is most of what the experience washes out. In fact, there's a phenomenon called duration neglect, which says that we tend to forget the length of an experience. And what we're left with are snippets, you know, moments. Any of you can test this just by thinking of some period in your life, a vacation or a semester in college or your first month on the job, and you'll notice very quickly you can't just summon up that whole experience and watch it beginning to end. You just remember the special parts, the best parts, the worst parts. And so when we're creating experiences for customers, that's a really important point because it's counterintuitive in a way because we've been trained that if we want to create a great experience – logic would hold that, well, all of it's got to be great, right? It's got to be wall-to-wall great. It's got to be end-to-end great. But in fact, if you 
pay careful attention to experiences that are really meaningful, really memorable to people, what you'll find is that those experiences are often mostly forgettable and occasionally remarkable. And what happens is we're so busy trying to minimize the problems and the potholes that people experience that we forget to build the peaks that are the remarkable bits. Yeah. And they don't seem very difficult. I mean, if you think about the expense of gourmet popsicles and one employee and one telephone, that's not much of an expense to become the number two rated hotel in Los Angeles. And I'm sure they're doing more than that, right? But it takes some creativity. It takes some thought. It takes some really empathy and compassion and care for our customers' experience. You're making me want to hire somebody who just does this, who just sits around StoryBrand and figures out how to do this kind of thing. I think it might be a worthy investment. Would you actually say that that would be a worthy investment for a lot of customers or a lot of clients? No, I don't because I, I think that it's everybody's job. Like I think oh, that the mistake wow, yeah. we're making is this. Like I think everybody who delivers a product or service to a customer understands that step one is to what Chip and I call whelming people. You know, not overwhelming, not underwhelming, but whelming them, meaning that we've delivered just the basic set of things that people expect from whatever we're delivering. So, you know, back to the Magic Castle, if your beds are just horribly uncomfortable or if you don't have air conditioning, people aren't going to be charmed by the Popsicle hotline. First, you have to show that you've basically gotten above the bar. That's something we call in the book filling pits. And so filling pits is a natural first step for a service experience. But then I think people make the error of progressing from pits to filling potholes, fixing potholes. And so we think if we want to make something better, you know, we've got to survey customers and pay attention to all the things that they're complaining about and then rush around and fix those things. And the thing is, that will never stop. Like you're never going to run a survey where everybody does nothing but rave about you. There are always going to be more things that you could tinker with. And meanwhile, you may have spent years chasing potholes and never gotten around to building peaks. And so in a sense, what we're saying is we've got to move away from the model of filling pits and then fixing potholes and move toward a model of filling pits and then raising peaks. And I think that's a company-wide job. I think that is an absolute core business responsibility. That to me was one of the more inspirational. Yeah, and we're, I love, we're working and we, on that. We do as a company. some of those even in our workshop intentionally. For we that do, reason. and I want to do even more. Oh yeah, you know, oh, yeah. there's just something about that. You know, it's like the new form of guerrilla marketing is guerrilla kindness and yeah. guerrilla interesting and guerrilla. It's really kind of fun. Yeah, Rachel Hollis is next. Of course, we talked earlier about the fact that her book just blew up. Yeah, girl, wash your face. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's what the name of her book is. Yes. I think it's really, and probably everybody says it just like that. <laughs> they probably do, and uh, couldn't happen to a better person. She talks about the importance of going deep in social media. Don't yeah. worry about having 5 million followers. The 50 that you've got, go deep with them. And there's yeah. real power in that. Here's Rachel Hollis talking about going deep with your social media followers. You say deep versus wide. What do you mean by deep versus wide? Well, so many people are obsessed with the idea that in order for social media to work for you, that you need as many followers and as many fans as possible. And that's just not true. In fact, people who have 500 engaged fans or audience members are way more powerful than someone who has 500,000 that barely pay attention. In particular, let's say you own a small business and it's just localized. You own a bakery or you're an accountant in a small town. Having a following in your town can be super powerful. It's incredible word of mouth. It creates a great little tribe. So 
I always tell people, don't try and get more friends. Don't try and get more fans. Try and take better care of the people you already have. So really simple ways that you can do that. Number one, I got to ask you to ask yourself why you have this platform. Why are you on Facebook? Why are you on Instagram? I can't tell you how many times I have sat with Fortune 500 companies, a room full of people, and I'm like, what is your Facebook for? You've got 2 million fans here. What is your Facebook for? And nobody can give me an answer. If you don't think through, what's the point? Are we offering information? Are we trying to make people laugh? Are we trying to show them our product? If you don't know your why, like Simon Sinek says, if you don't know your why, how are you supposed to deliver it to them? So using those platforms to answer every single comment, to like it when people say something, to answer questions. Facebook can be one of the greatest customer service tools you will ever have. And every time you don't respond to people, all of your new customers who are considering using you can see that. So it's really simple to serve your tribe well. You just need to show up for them. Honestly, it makes my brain explode when I go on someone's Facebook page and I see all sorts of comments and nobody is responding to them or at the very least liking them. I'll tell you, I'm sure you guys are the same. We're getting thousands of comments a day. There are three people on my staff who just are answering questions, writing back, clicking like, because we want you to know that this community is for you. And if we're not showing up for you there, then why would you show up for us? In some ways, it's like the information center at a giant mall. Everything is going digital. The physical environment is less and less important, although I think at least it is in this phase. And if you don't have that cash register up front and the information booth and people walking through the store talking to people, it all lives digital. And so I love this idea that you actually have three people responding at all times. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. If someone reaches out, let's say to me or even to you, someone reaches out to one of us, it takes a lot of courage to reach out to someone online. You have to like them enough. You have to want to talk to them. And if nobody responds to you, it's crushing. I've been that person. I'm a huge book nerd. And when I've reached out to authors that I admire and they don't write back, I know it's so silly, but it hurts my feelings and it changes my perception of them as an author. It takes very little to love on people. Honestly, just going through and clicking like can take five minutes out of your day, but just tells your tribe, like, I see you, I know you're here, and I want to be present for you. All right, if you want to listen to the full interview with Rachel Hollis, episode 83 of the Building the Story Brand podcast, just so happens episode 84 is Patrick Lencioni. One of our faves. Tim's of, man crush. Tim has a man crush on Patrick, and I might also. Who doesn't? Here's what people don't probably realize about him until you hear him speak. He's hilarious. Yeah, yes, he's so funny. He's hilarious. He's like a- I think I like said a, about him and like Andy Stanley are like the two people that deliver yeah. every single time I've seen them. Yeah. Home it, runs. He's unbelievable. But Patrick's going to talk about the ideal team player. What do you want to cultivate in a person in order to be a great team player? Here's our conversation with Patrick Lencioni. You know, you say, look, if you if you hire somebody who's only humble, they're not going to be driven because they don't like conflict. If you hire somebody who's only hungry, they'll be high impact, but they'll have no awareness of others. Now, I've hired that person, and it's really yeah. painful. And if they're only smart, they're going to be a charmer. They're going to be very fun, but they're going to have no interest in team goals, you have to put them all together. Talk us out of the temptation of firing an incomplete package. Well, here's the thing. So I think that there's something we can do that's better than getting rid of somebody who doesn't meet these. And that is sit down with them 
and have them, we, we tell our, the teams we work with, everybody, let's just rank ourselves, not rate, but rank ourselves first through third on these values. I don't care if oh, you're wow. great at all of them or if you're <laughs> terrible at all of them. You, one of them's the third. Yeah. So everybody goes, okay, here's my third. We got it. And that makes it a little less feeling judgmental and they self-rate. And then we go, okay, so let's get together with people that share our, our area and brainstorm about how we're going to get better. So in other words, somebody says, okay, you know, I'm not very humble. And they, I've had this happen with it. And they come back and they say, I uh, talk about myself a lot. I don't really take an interest in others. It's kind of about how things affect me. And uh, I don't celebrate other people enough to know what's going on in their life and in their work. I need to get better at that. And the leader says, good. Okay. And here's where the rubber meets the road. I'm going to call you on that because I love you every time I see you do it. So you're, you're helping the people who aren't doing well in these categories. Part of the process is helping them get better. Yes, in exactly. a non-judgmental, non-unconditionally loving kind of environment. Absolutely. Now, here's the beauty of this. If we as leaders, and we rarely do, this may have been the biggest discovery I made in my 20 years of doing this. If you constantly remind somebody every time you see them do that in a loving but honest way that, you, oh, you did it again. There, you did it again. Yeah. They are going to do one of two things, Don. They're going to get better, and they often do. They really do. Because nobody likes to be reminded every day, gosh, I'm falling short. Or they're going to leave because they realize this environment demands something to me that's just not my natural strength. Yeah, yeah. Those are both okay. I had a friend over dinner once say there was somebody on staff who probably needed to go, and Roy said to me, define the company values. Define what they are. We had already done that. Remind everybody what they are. Have a session where you talk about it. Have them write it down. And I almost guarantee you that person will leave within a couple months. There you go. And we did it, and they did. They were gone. I didn't have to fire them. And that, their dignity they have of going – I'm self-selecting myself out because this isn't my fit. That's a healthy process. You know, Alan Mulally turned Ford around. I don't know if you've read that book, um, American Icon, but I highly recommend it. He turned Ford around in the worst situation it could have been. It's really quite an amazing story. And far too few Americans understand it. I didn't until I met him and I read the book. He fired almost nobody at Ford. Huh. I would have thought he'd have gone in there and yeah, said, Yeah, clean house. Right. You know what he did? He said, this is the new way we're going to do things. And that's how we're going to do it. And then he'd catch somebody doing the wrong thing. And he'd go, you know, you, you got to come to all these meetings we're having. And they go, well, I don't really want to. And he'd go, that's okay. And they go, really? And he goes, yeah, we could still be friends, but you can't work here. So what do you want to do? It's up to you. <laughs> and he meant it. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. bitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know how many people left on their own quickly? Yeah, a lot, I would imagine. And there's something about joyful accountability, I call it that we don't do. I like to say this. I tell somebody once, and I'm not good at this. I'm an ENFP in the Myers-Briggs, so I'm, I'm kind of a, a yeah. wuss, as I call it. And so I'll see a person do something wrong, and I'll go up and tell them. And then I'll see them do it again the next week, and I'll go right to my wife, and I'll tell her. And then I'll go <laughs> right to my colleagues, and I'll tell them. <laughs> and then I'll go, why doesn't this guy get it? <laughs> again, if you like that little clip, Listen to the whole thing. It's episode 84 of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Next is Tim Arnold. How did we find him? He's you, been with us for a long time. You were time. at a workshop. That's right. Mm -hmm. I did something in Canada, Canada, and Tim was the MC of this thing of that, that I was doing in Canada. that you were doing. And he pulled this group of people together so well that I kind of went to him and said, would you ever be interested in <laughs> facilitating for us? For us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, I might. And he flew down to Nashville, and we got to know him, and he's been with us for years now. Yeah. And he happened to write a book called The Power of Healthy Tension. 
And there's a lot in the book, but one of the things I got most out of the book is that there will always be tension. Yeah, It's never going to go away. That if you have this idea that you're going to make tension go away, forget it. You have to balance the tension and manage the tension. And so uh, he wrote the book and he's on staff, but this podcast exploded. Yeah, It took off because it's so very, very practical. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, here's a little bit of my conversation with Tim Arnold. And it starts at a young age and it doesn't stop. I mean, just look at our political situation right now. It's, you know, you're right, you're wrong. People that I agree with are smart. Everyone else is an idiot. I mean, we just have that perspective that kind of works against us because when we encounter things like this parenting example or tons of other examples in our leadership and our organizations, we can't see that this isn't something that's an either or. These are two things like inhaling and exhaling. They They, can only exist together. One can't exist without the other. And if I try, it's as futile as inhaling all day. You don't talk about this in the book, but I kept coming back to it, right? I've been on a journey. I've gotten much healthier. You know, I'm going to a gym and all those kinds of things. It's been a long journey. It's been pretty successful. One of the things that has made that journey more successful for me is structure and flexibility. Because I was trying to relate this to my life. The structure is I'm going to go to the gym almost every day, right? I'm going to go almost every day. And the flexibility is after about 30 minutes in the pool, if I want to go home, I can go home. In other words, it's sort of like I'm going to have these rules, but I know if I keep these rules too religiously, I will bail on this program. Am I on to something Totally. There? And what I love about that is, you know, we're just getting away from the new year, but the new year, everyone has right, right. their Rid- resolution, right? structure. And they go to podcasts, you know, they go to downloads with these wonderful plans that have seven steps or five habits. They don't work. We know that they don't work. They never worked. And I think part of it is because it didn't get into the underlying kind of reality that I think you're talking about is some of the biggest challenges in life have an underlying tension. And what you're tapping into is I know that if I'm going to be successful at achieving this long-term goal, I've got to do it in a way that's on one hand structured and has a bit of flexibility. Now, it's interesting. You kind of have to dance with it. You do. And it doesn't mean, you know, we would often use the term in North America, well, you just need to find balance. I don't believe it exists because the way that works for you right now may not work next season when you're on the road a lot. Or, you know, how I managed in my health structure and flexibility changed a heck of a lot when I had my first kid. And it's changing a lot now that I'm traveling. So I have to say, okay, what are the, similar to breathing, if structure and flexibility both have to exist, how do I know that I'm getting the upsides of each? How do I know when I'm overdoing it? You know, and you'll know because the moment, I think the structure that you've talked about in your workout routine, it's working well for you. But if you overdo it and you don't allow for that flexibility, you're going to start to resent your workouts. And I think you're getting to the essence of this is I'm actually going to get unstuck and start to see these goals realized because I'm learning what the healthy tension is between the structure I need and the flexibility that well, I need as well. if you think about just a rod or something that is you know, slightly flexible, you bend it too much and it breaks, right? We kind of have to learn where to stop. That's right. You use the analogy of a riptide and a wave. Hmm. And I actually, I mean, I had to put down the book and think for a while about this because I found so many other applications for it with people I'm interacting with. I didn't even know this. I've been in the ocean a million times. I didn't know this. I knew there was a riptide. But I didn't realize the riptide was channeled almost like a river at points along the shore. That's right. I thought it just came up under the waves. Well, I learned this the hard way. I mean, I'm a great lakes person. I've never really been around the ocean. So I spent a week with my university buddies at a reunion doing surf school. Right, yeah. First morning of surf school, our instructor wouldn't even let us go in the water. They said, you know what? Take a look out there. Everyone knows how this works, right? You paddle out and the waves bring you back in. You know, if all the waves are constantly coming to the shore, how's the water get back out? 
of course, we're like, what? We just want to surf, you know? But he said, no, think about it. And generally, he was getting to what you're talking about. And that is, you know, conventional wisdom is that the water's constantly coming in. But what you need to be aware of is that there's this other undercurrent going on where the water kind of eddies along the shore and it literally forms a river perpendicular to the shore. It goes literally straight out in the ocean. So the reason I'm telling you this is you don't have to worry about sharks this week. You don't have to worry about anything else except these riptides. Because if you go with what you know, if you go with your conventional wisdom or your bias, you're going to get in one of these. You're going to lift your head. You'll be three times farther out from shore than you thought you'd be. And everything in you is going to say swim to shore because mm-hmm. that's the way it works. Yeah. But the harder you swim to shore, the farther you're going to go in the opposite direction. Guaranteed. Says so you can't do it. You've got to learn to actually pivot, swim parallel to shore to get out of the riptide, and then go with what you know. Then go kind of back with the waves, let the waves take you in. The analogy is in our work, in our lives, in our relationships, I think the conventional wisdom, the waves, are kind of this problem-solving mindset that most things are solvable. You know, I'm an accountant by trade, so I'm a fan of problem solving. (laughs) Most things can be solved. There's strategies for this. Just get the right solution and you're done. That's great until you find yourself in one of these tensions. You're dealing with, you know, as a leader, should I be candid and clear or should I be more diplomatic and relational? You know, in my strategy, do I need this you know, hardcore structure, or do we need to be more flexible? You know, moving forward with our company, do we embrace change and innovation, or should we be more kind of traditional core values-based? Right. Well, you know what? Both. And if we just choose one to the neglect of the other, we'll do it for good reasons. But the longer we hold on to one side and not the other, we actually find ourselves going farther and farther and farther from the very place we want to go, for yeah. the reason we're holding on to that in the first place. Now, it's cool. I mean, I saw this in surfing is that, you know, the pro surfers in the morning we get out there, you know, I'd be scared of these riptides. The first thing they do is look for them because they would find them immediately. They'd use them and leverage them and they'd ride them out and they'd say, you know, I'd be flailing and fumbling to get to one good break. They're already on their seventh wave because they've because taken, taken the totally, escalator taken right back something out to sea. Yeah. that could hurt people if they don't understand them and they've actually leveraged them to their advantage. Yeah. And that's ultimately what we're talking about with the power of healthy tension. If you like that, episode 85 has the full interview. I highly recommend listening to that. Listen, we'll be right back with the rest of the best of 2018 in just a moment. I know it's New Year's Eve, or if you're listening to this a few days late, it's the beginning of the year. And I'm wondering if you're wondering, how is your year going to go? It is going to go a lot better for your business if you come to a StoryBrand Marketing Workshop. If you clarify your message and clean up your marketing, it will work for you the entire rest of the year. So at this point in 2020, two days into 2020, you could have one of the best years you've ever had. We hear that all the time, 40, 50% increases in revenue, all because people clarified their message. We actually moved our StoryBrand Marketing Workshop from one location that held about 160 people to another that holds 350 so that we can get you in. So you can still get in, and it's happening again in February, you need to register for the workshop right away. Here's what will happen. We will fly out on Sunday night. You'll have a dessert where you'll meet everybody and we'll do some kind of icebreaker games so you build a little bit of community. By Monday morning, you'll actually know some people. You'll be talking to them. You'll have some great conversations. And then I get up and I deliver a great lecture, if I may say so myself, on why you need to clarify your message and how you can do it. Then you actually spend the rest of two days clarifying seven messaging points that you will repeat over and over. The reason is good marketing does one thing. It guides customers through an exercise in memorization. We're going to teach you to teach other people how to memorize your offer. And that's how word begins to spread. 
As soon as you do that, word goes viral and you sell more products. It's the best thing you can do for your business and it's definitely the best investment. Go to storybrand.com today and register and we will see you at the dessert on Sunday night and I will see you in the room Monday morning. You're gonna have a great time you're going to clarify your message, and you're going to grow your business. If you register today, you can go to bed tonight knowing you did the best thing you can possibly do to grow your business. But you've got to register today. Go to storybrand.com, register for our February workshop, and we'll see you in just a few weeks. All right, JJ, next is Ron Clark. Yes. You liked Ron. I loved Ron. He's fascinating. Yes, because he dances. Would you want to work for him? Yes, actually, I would. It would be like working for John Wooden or something. Well, it, You would have to go into it knowing, I'm going to come out of this 10 times better yes. of a human being than I went in, but we're going to run. Well, what we talk about all the time is people follow clear leaders, and I feel like yeah, you would know clear. where you stood with him. Yeah. Like, it would be very clear if you're doing a good job or not. I'd do it. Yeah. I'd take a year away from StoryBrand to go work and for work him. for Ron Clark Just and come learn. back and StoryBrand would, I think we wouldn't miss oh, yeah. a beat. 100%. We'd still grow. Ron Clark is a teacher in Atlanta, Georgia. He actually created his own school to teach teachers how to teach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's got a book called Move Your Bus. Again, one of the favorites of the entire year. Here's Ron Clark. When I first started teaching, I was trying to really bring it to life and make it exciting. I wanted my students to be in love with learning. And I recognized that as I did different things in my classroom, that other teachers weren't really as interested to try. It was kind of like, keep your door closed, stay in your classroom, kind of just do what you do. And so I was afraid that we really weren't having a revolution in our profession, that people weren't learning from each other. I had a dream that one day I was going to build a school open up all the doors, and I was going to invite educators from around the world to come see what I think an outstanding school should look like. So that is the school that we built in Atlanta, Georgia, and now 46,000 educators have come from all over the world. They come from China, Finland, Russia, India. They come to see what the best type of school in the world could be. And so we've created this business. And so not only do I teach every day, but I also run this huge organization where five to 600 educators are coming to our school each week to learn from not only how we teach, but how do we run our school and how do we run our business as well. And the problem is, I would imagine, you know, you've got kind of government and institution, you've got a union protecting teachers, you've got fixed salaries. In my opinion, teachers in this country do not make enough money. They are under-respected. I would love to stop some of the entitlement programs or at least shrink some entitlement programs and give teachers more money. I'd love to have, I mean, we could go on and on about how to fix education, but the point here is a lot of our organizations that we're running are very similar. There's a lot of people, you know, our profit margins are small. People may not be getting paid exactly what they deserve, those kinds of things. You're always going to have those systemic problems. You fixed it with a metaphor. You fixed it by helping teachers understand their jobs a little bit differently or how they're wired a little bit differently. Is it fair to say that? Talk to me about the metaphor of the bus. Sure. Well, it's not only for teachers. It's kind of for any business. I picture every organization like it's a bus. And however far the bus goes, that equals the success of your organization. But what really makes your organization successful or what really makes the bus travel is not so much the product or the building you're in. It's more about the people that you hire. When you have great people on your team, the bus is going to fly. So what everyone does is we cut holes in the floor of the bus, kind of like Fred Flintstone. We put our feet down and we try to make it move as quickly as possible. And the bus has different types of people. You have runners who are just, they've dropped their feet. They're killing it. They're pushing as hard as they can. You have joggers who are kind of doing, you know, what's expected. You have walkers that are kind of being pulled by the bus 
And then riders, they're kind of sitting on the back of the bus and they're dead weight and everyone else has to work harder to get them to be successful and to help the bus move. So basically, this parable or the story is about how do you get people on a bus to move faster without paying them more because I couldn't pay teachers more. But how do I get them to want to move, to want to achieve excellence and want to find success with the whole organization? That's kind of the concept. Well, let's go back and talk about each little segmented audience here. You talk about runners. Describe a runner because sure. we're all thinking about our organizations and we're going to be thinking, oh, you know, Tim's a runner. What's a runner? Yeah, the runners are the best you got. They come early. They stay late. They're positive. They're not complainers. They don't get into the naggy-naggy talk with everyone. They don't challenge authority. They just desperately want to be part of a team. They want to be part of an organization where everyone's successful. They don't need the light to shine on them very much. They're humble. They just want to really hunker down and work hard to make the organization great. You can depend on them. They're trustworthy. They're awesome. And then you've got the joggers who the joggers do their job. And I like the joggers, too, because they contribute. But joggers want more attention. Like whenever they do something, they want to make sure that everyone notices it. And when they volunteer to do something, it's more so because they want to be recognized that they volunteered where a runner volunteers because a runner just generally wants to do whatever is necessary to help the organization. So those are the main two differences between a runner who's really going above and beyond and a jogger who just does what's expected. Like in our school, teachers who like volunteer to do the yearbook committee, they'll complain about it all the time. They'll say, oh my gosh, I was up all weekend working on this yearbook. I'm not doing it next year. They're going to ask me to do it next year. I'm not doing it. Well, she's done it 20 years. She's going to do it next year, too. But they just feel the need. <laughs> and that's a jogger. You think that's a jogger, not a runner, necessarily. They're, yeah. They want a little bit of the spotlight. They're playing victim a little bit. But they are contributing. They do contribute. So I actually like the joggers because, hey, they do the yearbook committee. They do a good job. But <laughs> At the end of the day. You get into walkers and riders. But before we get into walkers and riders, how do you, as a leader, and you've got a category here for leader we haven't even talked about, how do you help a jogger become a runner? Yeah. Number one, it's about who you hang out with. If you hang out with positive people who are going above and beyond, you tend to fall into that type of category. If you hang out with the negative people, you tend to be negative. There are some people in every organization, they want to point out everything that's wrong. One lady said to me, she said, well, I'm just pointing out everything that needs to be fixed. And I said, well, if you're not the one that's going to fix it, you're just making the problem worse by complaining about it. There is no perfect business. There is no perfect place to work on earth. And if you're so unhappy where you are, then we wish you well. Go find that perfect place for you. But every place has problems. People come from all over the world to see my school every week. We're not perfect either. We have issues too. I mean, there is no perfect place. And so I encourage people, if you want to be a runner, hang out with people who run, listen to what you talk about, stay positive, don't stay negative. You want to make sure that you're trying to be a positive member of the team, not a negative member of the team. There's things that we can all do. Don't be a victim. Fascinating. Yes. Yeah. I'd work from, makes you want to be an elementary school kid again. Yeah. To be in that environment would be amazing. Yeah, those kids are, they have a slight advantage. Yeah. Also, what gave us a slight advantage this year at weddings uh-huh. is Vanessa Van Edwards. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she wrote a book called Captivate, uh-huh. and it's basically a book about that teaches you what people like in other people and how to do that. Do you remember right after we did this interview, you and I went to an event, a fundraising event? I, and We were geeked I, out on this. And, and I stood by the shrimp so that I could <laughs> see if this worked. Like, it was like, 
like she told you specifically where to stay. She at, tells like, you where to stand and, at a reception. And I was like, I'm testing this. And I went to the end of the food line to because she talks about like making eye contact when people are walking away from That's the food right. table. And I did it and it worked. <laughs> Which because we're not gonna play that part of the interview, no. but if you want to go back, it's episode ninety six. Yeah. And she basically gives you the science yeah. of why people do or do not like you. Yeah. And also where to meet people, how to meet people, bit of what to say, what to do with your hands. Uh-huh. Uh, so one of the things is there's something subconscious in us that wants to know if a person has a weapon. Yeah. And so when you actually meet somebody, you hold up both hands. Yeah. And I, and I, I just do that every time. You walk on stage now. Every time I walk on stage, I do it. I yep. raise both my hands. Yeah. And it feels natural. It feels like this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed yeah. to say, hey, buddy, I don't have a weapon. My yeah. name is Don. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, I don't know why. It's just fun. And then she also, what you're getting at is, you know, if you go to something like a wedding reception, uh-huh. don't stand in the place where people are coming through the door for the first time. Yeah. Because their minds are scoping the room, looking for security, wondering if there's somebody that they know. Their minds are preoccupied. Yeah. And so what you do is they come, they give up their code, they register, they walk in the room, they look around, you get to give them the space to do that. Then they'll either go get food or go to the bar, and you want to stand at the place where they're coming away from the bar. Yep. And that's when they want to talk to you. <laughs> yep. So she did a study on the fact that the people who stood in that place got more business cards than the people who yes. stood at the door. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. And it makes complete sense. Oh, 100%. Okay, so here's a, our conversation with Vanessa Van Edwards, one of the top podcasts of the year. I, it's got to be in my top three. Yeah. Here's Vanessa Van Edwards. Being ambivalent or deciding I don't like that person doesn't mean that you can't treat them with what I call micro-positives. So many years ago, I came across the term micro-messages. And I've always been fascinated by lie detection and body language. So, uh, you know, I run a a lab and we do a lot of lie detection research. So the audience knows you helped write and research and consult with the television show Lie to Me. So I was trained by the man that show was about. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's even better. But anyway. So I love lie detection research. I find it fascinating. While I was in doing, we were doing a big study on lie detection cues, I discovered this term micromessages. So micromessages is this idea that we are constantly sending out very subtle nonverbal signals to people around us. A researcher, really interesting woman named Mary P. Rowe, decided to really dive into how our micromessages not only affect people's perception of us, but also affect people's performance. She found was she was able to break down micro messages, nonverbals, into two buckets micro negatives, or what she calls microaggressions, and micro positives. So, as you can imagine, like for example, an eye roll would be a microaggression or micro negative. A smile or a nod would be a micro positive. And there are hundreds of them, and there are a lot of them. Her hypothesis was that managers who have favorite employees show them more micro positives. And who have least favorite employees show them micronegatives. And this actually creates a really, really dangerous cultural cycle. So she took this to the test and she found managers that said, I treat my employees equally. Now, most managers think that they treat their employees equally. Even if they have favorites, they say, no, I try to be really judicious, really fair. So she found those managers, the ones that prided themselves in treating people equally. And then she observed videos of them interacting with their team. And she was able to correctly identify her and her team, which the manager's favorite employees were and who the manager's wow. least favorite employees were, just wow. accounting the number of micro-messages. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So one is we can see, we can sense who our favorite and least favorite people are. But two, and this is where I think we really have a lot of work to do, she found that the employees who got the micro-negatives 
actually began to perform even worse. So it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. It's another version of the famous Pygmalion effect or the expectancy effect that if you treat a low-performing employee like they're low-performing, and by the way, this is very subtle. You think you're being equal, but just very subtly, a little bit more micro-negatives, that employee will then go on to perform worse. And your employees that get treated with more micro-positives, not only do they act even better, they have higher productivity, more happiness, more efficiency, other employees notice that they're not the favorite and it makes them feel even worse. I want to get into the practical application of this. Like my notes here, I'm dying because you talk about how to make a great first impression in the first five minutes. And then you actually talked about the first five days. And I'd like to get into it all. There's no way we're going to do it. Again, the book is called Captivate. (laughs) I want everybody to read it with me and we'll practice on each other when we see each other at a book signing. But if that's true, what do you recommend a manager do? Let's say he's walking into the office for the first time on Monday morning. What changes based on these micro-communications that he or she now understands they need to do differently? What are the tangible changes they need to make? Sure. So first step is self-diagnosis. Okay. There's a reason we hate to listen to ourselves on the phone or hate to watch ourselves on video. It's because all of a sudden, our micro-messages become very apparent to us and we don't like it. So what I would say, the very first thing you want to do, and this is actually, once you get into it, it's incredibly illuminating. Turn on your video camera or your photo booth or the video app on your phone. And next time you are talking to one of your employees, record just your end. So what we want to start to self-diagnose is how do you look when you're listening, when you're speaking, when you're agreeing, and when you're disagreeing. This is terrifying. Yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. Okay, keep going. I know. (laughs) You've lost half the audience. (laughs) I know. I know. Everyone's like, oh my God, forget it, forget it. And this is like... Sales techniques. I do a lot of sales trainings and they used to put a mirror in front of you. A mirror doesn't really work in the moment. You have to actually be able to horribly and wonderfully critique your own video. So first, do this with a couple of your different employees. And you know, you know who your, I wouldn't say least favorite and favorites are, but who you're closer with or who you're not as close with. And I want you to actually make a piece of paper, draw a line down the center. The left is micropositives, the right is micronegatives. And write down Every positive cue you see, so that would be, we know this intuitively, nods, smiles, leaning in, usually a heightened volume, passion in our voice, any of those micropositives. And then on the other side, put all your micronegatives. So nodding your head, no, making a contempt microexpression, an anger microexpression, rolling your eyes, closing your eyes, blocking behavior, leaning back, all those. And I want you to see if the data, your data, If you could tell who your favorite and least favorite employees are, who your favorite and least favorite clients are, who your favorite and least favorite companies are to work with, just to see what do you do, what are you showing, because otherwise it's almost impossible to diagnose if we don't know exactly what our tells are. It's very similar to lying. Wow. And then once we realize, okay, I'm doing these things, how powerful is self-awareness to get us to change? Luckily, that is the easiest way to begin to stop doing those cues. So once you see them, it's like all of a sudden seeing that some, an outfit doesn't look good on you or seeing that like shoes don't quite fit you right. Once you notice it, it's really hard to unnotice it. So what I would do then, the next step is, okay, you see how what your micronegative tells are, what your micropositives are. And then on your next few calls, notice how all of these are with calls. The reason for that is because I find lo- calls, phone calls, low pressure practice. It's so hard to do this in person right up front. So On your next few calls, just turn on your photo booth, right? So you can see yourself. 
And then you'll be able to stop yourself while you're actually speaking, while you're actually listening. It's like exercising that muscle. Those two steps can almost always eradicate at least your biggest micro negative tells and then begin to dial up those micro positives. Again, that was episode 96. You want to go back and listen to this whole thing. Episode 110 is Joey Coleman. He wrote a book called Never Lose a Customer Again. Some interviews are inspirational. Mm -hmm. Some interviews are you just start making a list of things you want to do right away. Yep. And I came away from Joey Coleman's going, okay, there's like five things I want to yeah. do with our company. We actually execute some of the stuff and it really works. But he just talks about why customers are loyal, how to gain trust, how to create brand evangelists. I love this interview with Joey Coleman. Again, episode 110, if you want to listen to the whole thing, here's Joey Coleman. But again, what is it about the heart of the people that you've studied who take this extra effort what are they thinking and how are they wired differently than maybe the average business leader? I think there's a couple of factors. Number one, and I'll come back to this one. One is they've recognized the negative impact hmm. that customer defection can have on a business. And I'll come back to talk about some of the, what I find to be terrifying statistics about how many customers are leaving your business and you're not even realizing it as a business owner. But I think the common thread that connects the 46 companies that I do as case studies in the book and the business owners that I talk to and all these individuals is that they're connected very emotionally to the reason they got into business in the first place. And as somebody who's been an entrepreneur for, you know, fast approaching two decades, I understand how when we start our businesses lots of times or when we first, if you're an employee and you first go to work at a new company, you're excited about it. You're excited about the product or the service. You're committed to helping people. And the problem is, as time goes on, we get caught up in the non-exciting parts of our business, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. for me, for example, you know, the bookkeeping, the file management, the scheduling, you know, all the things that are important and necessary and required in every business, but they aren't very exciting. And we get distanced from from the humans, from the people that we really were hoping to serve and connect with. The common thread that I saw in all the folks that we profiled in the book and in my clients that I've worked with over the last 20 years on this stuff is that they are very committed to serving not only their customers, but their employees as well. And one of the added benefits of focusing on customer retention that, to be honest, I didn't see it in the beginning nearly as much because I wasn't looking for it. But one of the things I'm most excited about with the launch of the book is the number of people who have said, Joey, we, we took your methodology that you outlined, we've implemented in our business, we've seen improvement in our retention already, but more importantly, we've seen improvement in our employee engagement. People are connected to our story. They're connected to why we're here. They are excited to come to work every day. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I get even more excited because that means we're helping external customers and internal customers with the same effort. Yeah, absolutely. And you're also adding a great place to work metric in there too, where people just enjoy their job because they're connected to the bottom line of helping people. You've got eight different phases of this process. And I want to get to that in a second. But before we get to that, give us the pain points. Tell us why we've got to do this and statistically why we're just losing money if we don't care about our customers in this way. Absolutely. So when I started doing this research, I realized that many companies were dealing with customer defection. And I, the first one I came across was in the banking industry. In the banking industry, where you would think folks really pay attention to numbers in the bottom line, right? That's kind of the nature of being a banker. 32% of new bank customers 
will leave that bank before their one-year anniversary. Really? That's actually surprising because it's complicated to leave a bank. It's really complicated. 32%. leave before the one-year anniversary. Despite the fact that they've filled out all the paperwork, they've gotten new debit cards, new checks, set up their new e-billing, you know, put in their deposits, cleared their money, got everything going, 32% leave before Why? the Why? What's the reason? Well, what's crazy, if I may, 16% of those people, half of those leave before the 100-day anniversary. <laughs> Did they just get the toaster? They got the toaster oh, and man, they walked away. Yeah, exactly. They get the toaster. <laughs> we're, we're dating ourselves, Don, with that comment. Both of That's us. We're both aware of that, I remember but, those days. <laughs> oh, I hear you, brother. I hear you. You know what? My mother used to do that. She used to go sign up for an account. You get a $50 credit, and she'd get the $50, and then she'd close the account a couple months later. Yep, exactly. I hate to say that because my mother is a saint, no, no, but, but she did it. there's a lot of people that did that. There's a lot of people. You know, you're right. Toasters was the the first real new customer acquisition giveaway that I found, you know, that was kind of big in the banking industry back in the day. But what I realized when I saw that half of the people that were leaving before the one year anniversary left in the first hundred days, I realized that this was an onboarding issue Hmm. that customers weren't getting connected to the brand. They weren't using the product or the service they had purchased in a way that they found value quickly. And I said, well, if it's this bad in banking, What's it like in other industries? And that led me on a multi-year investigation of industries all around the world. And what I found is that in the auto repair industry, kind of auto repair mechanics, it's 68%. In cell phones, it's 21%. Restaurants hover between 40 and 80%. These numbers were just staggering. And what I realized is across all industries, somewhere between 20 and 70% of your new customers will decide to stop doing business with you before they reach the 100-day anniversary. And when I started sharing this with my clients and with audiences around the world, people were, they were in dismay. They were like, no, this can't be the case. And I'd say, great, so what's your defection rate? And they're like, well, Joey, we don't measure that. I said, great, why don't you start measuring that and then get back to me? And then they got back to me and they were like, oh my gosh, Joey, it's 38%, it's 42%, it's 75%. I mean, these staggering numbers that they had no idea. I posit, Don, that this is the biggest threat facing businesses on the planet today that no one is paying attention to. All right, that's episode 110 if you want to listen to the whole thing. Actually, have your marketing people listen to that. Yeah. We actually created, JJ, a director of hospitality position Mm -hmm. based on some of the interviews we did with podcasts. Yeah. And I couldn't be more excited about that position. Yeah. I consider it part of the marketing sales triad. Yeah. So there's the marketing team at StoryBrand, the sales team at StoryBrand, and now we are creating in 2019 the hospitality team. Mm -hmm. And their job is to increase the talkability based on our interview with Jay Bear. Never lose a customer again based on our interview with Joey Coleman and also create moments based on our interview with Dan Heath. Yeah. Literally, I believe in those three interviews enough yeah. that we're creating an entire department at StoryBrand yeah. to execute on it. So that's exciting. Next is my interview with Michael Bungay-Stanier. He wrote a book called The Coaching Habit. And we all have meetings with our team members mm-hmm. all the time. And he would argue probably that most of those those meetings, meetings are pretty yeah. wasted. Yep amount of wasted time. And you're not really getting to the heart of things. You're not able to coach people in that. You're just like exchanging information. Yeah. So what if you could just learn a few skills that as you interact with your team throughout the day, you're actually coaching them. Mm -hmm. And that's what his whole premise is. And it was really captivating. Here's a section of that great interview with Michael Bungay-Stanier. Also, it's episode 117 if you want to listen to the whole thing. 
You know, it's true that they say people join organizations, but they leave managers. Mm-hmm. And if you're in an organization, whether it's a big organization or a small organization, for profit or not for profit, really you want to be saying to yourself, how do I show up as a manager, as a leader, as a human being in a way that actually brings forth the best of the people that I lead and I influence? For two reasons. One, so that you can bring forth their best so they can show up as a more engaged person. But it's not just about that. It's also about how do you bring them to do what I would call the great work, work that has more impact and work that has more meaning. And you're looking to try and do both of that, the focus of great work, the engagement to bring out their best. And the thing that I champion is helping people be more coach-like. So not turning them into coaches, but being more coach-like, which in the end, Don, comes down to this. Can you stay curious just a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving just a little bit more slowly? Because most of us are advice giving maniacs. Hmm. And we're just trying to slow that down as the default management technique. Are those the main differences between a manager and a coach? Well, see, for me, a coach is a profession. And there's plenty of people who listen to this podcast who are coaches, executive coaches or life coaches or whatever it might be. What I'm trying to do is focus on the manager, the leader, just the normal person. Yeah. In some ways, I'm trying to unweird what coaching is for normal people and say, look, it's not some arcane ritual. It's about just adding curiosity so it becomes a more constant part of the way you show up and interact with people. And those of us who haven't been coached well, it's harder to turn around and coach others. And you talk about in bad relationships with managers and coaches, we create overdependence. Yes. We get overwhelmed and we become disconnected. What is it costing our listeners to not coach their people well? The people with whom you work are everything when it comes down to it. I mean, they say that culture eats strategy for breakfast hmm. and culture is the behaviors of the people in your organization. So if you're thinking to yourself, what will make the difference for us is that smart thinking, that position. But having had that thought, how do you then enact it? Well, then you need your people to help you with that. Yeah. And if you can bring the best of your people out so that they're not feeling overwhelmed by the work that they're doing, they're not feeling disconnected from the work that matters, they're not feeling just having an over-dependent team that's kind of sucking them dry. If you can bring that out, then everybody wins. I want to go into the seven kinds of questions that you want to ask to be a good coach. One is the the kickstart question. You start a conversation about what matters to them most. How does that work? So the principle behind the Coaching Habit book is to say, look, you don't need that many questions to actually step up and lift your game as a manager, as a leader. As you say in the book, there are just seven questions. And the kickstart one is just a really powerful way to start a conversation. Because one of the barriers that we're up against, Don, is people going, look, Michael, This sounds all very good, but honestly, I am working really hard these days. I am flat out. I am behind on my email. I'm behind on my meetings. I'm behind on my obligations. I don't have time for this coaching stuff. I've seen it. You know, it's a 40-minute, 60-minute comment. Who has time for any of that stuff? And actually, I would say nobody does. I think if you're a busy manager, then what you've got to do is believe that you can coach in 10 minutes or less. Hmm. Now, if you're nodding your head and going, well, that sounds interesting, that means you've got to get into these conversations fast. You don't have time for one of these meandering starts to a conversation. So that's why the kickstart question is so powerful. What the kickstart question is, is what's on your mind? And what's powerful about what's on your mind as a way of starting a conversation, it says to them, hey, 
it's up to you to choose where we go with this. I'm giving you that autonomy. Mm. I'm giving you that yeah. mastery. I'm giving you that that sense that you get to be the author of this conversation. But don't tell me anything. Don't tell me everything. Tell me the thing you're excited about or worried about or just consumed by at the moment. Let's go somewhere important and let's go there fast. So what's on your mind digs you in there quickly. How do you dovetail that? Let's say you know a manager's listening and spending in a certain department has gotten way out of control. Right. And you know you've got to figure that out. Yeah. How do you go from what's in your mind to you guys are going to have to cut spending? But you know, you see what I'm saying that because most leaders are going to be agenda driven, and they're it's going to be counterintuitive for them to put the agenda in the mind of the person who they're talking to. Sure. What you're potentially looking for is maybe a combination of coaching and a combination of feedback as well. But say we've got this issue where you're like, okay, we're overspending. We've got to cut the the budget. One option is you come and you go, right, I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you what to cut. I'm telling you how to do this. And that might get the results. But what it doesn't do is actually build this team up so that they're more autonomous, more creative, feeling that they can make these decisions by themselves. And it didn't make them want to cut spending. Right. So you go, hey, Don, we've got to cut your budget because, you know, the market shifted, sales are down, expenses are up. What do you think the real challenge is for us around cutting the budget? So what's the real challenge here for you is the third question in the book. It's the focus question. And what it acknowledges is that often what we think is of the initial challenge is rarely the real challenge. So you go, okay, so let's, let's have a think about this. What's the real challenge for us in cutting the budget? And then you might add the best coaching question in the world, three simple words that make all the difference, and what else? Hmm. And what else just says their first answer is never their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. So then you go, great. And what else? What else is a challenge for us cutting the budget? You talk about that being the second question. So the first question is the kickstart question. The second question is the all question. And That's what right. else is what that means. It allows the person to continue their train of thought. And the only reason for the second question, which sounds like a rephrasing of the first question, is because you're saying the first time you ask a question, you're not actually going to get the answer probably. I reckon that there's always a second answer that's going to come. And yeah. sometimes the second answer is less strong, but often the second answer is more strong. The other reason that the and what else question works so well is it's a self-management tool to stop your advice monster. That's what happens when <laughs> as soon as somebody starts yeah. talking, your advice monster yeah. comes up out of the dark, goes, oh, I'm going to add some value to this conversation. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tool to manage your advice monster and keep that calm down as well. Again, episode 117. If you are somebody who has a lot of meetings yeah. with your own people, <laughs> yeah. you need to listen to that. And then finally, we're going to end with episode 121, Mr. Jesse Cole. Yes, banana suit. That's right. He wrote a book called Find Your Yellow Tux. He wears a bright <laughs> yellow tuxedo uh -huh. all the time. Oh, yeah. He owns the Savannah Bananas. It's a minor, 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 minor league baseball yeah, yeah. team <laughs> in Savannah, Georgia. But he sells 4,000 tickets per game. And I guess you could call it a game. A it's sort of Broadway it Broadway yeah. meets game. And there are 4,000 seats. He sells it completely out. Yep. You can't get in. I don't think. I mean, yeah. You can buy tickets uh, for yeah, watch two now. seasons <laughs> from now. Yeah, he buys tickets. To yeah. like, oh, I can't, yeah, I can't go. get in. <laughs> Our entire team is going to Savannah, yeah. and we're going to go to a game. And, I cannot wait. And the main reason I want to go to a game, there's there's two. One is, in this interview, he talks about the importance of getting attention. Yes. And if you think about it, that really is important. 
there's so many people on in social media and businesses that are just vying for anybody to pay attention to them. Yep. And it's not that hard. Yeah. You just need a yellow tux. Yeah. <laughs> and and you need to find yours. <laughs> you need to find That's your really what he talks tux. about in the yeah. book. It's like, what's your version of the yellow tux? I want to learn that, but he's also fascinating on the customer journey. I learned so much yeah. just from that book and that interview about what it looks like to really put your customers first and understand their journey and engaging with you and how you interact with them based on that. It, he's unbelievable. Yeah, he is. And, you know, I don't mean to say, I know he sold out the games forever, but yeah. I, you might be able to get tickets. We got tickets. I don't want to turn people away yeah, from the yeah. Savannah Bananas. <laughs> yeah. But it's the hottest ticket in town. Yeah. I should say that. Maybe you can get it on StubHub or something. Yeah. I don't know. But here's a little bit of my conversation with Jesse Cole. I just, I, he's just one of the most inspirational people that I've ever had yeah. the privilege of knowing. And I'm, I'm so excited that we're all going down there. I think you're going to be inspired. Here's the final of the best of 2018. It's Jesse Cole, author of Find Your Yellow Tuck. All right, point number six, small steps. Let the mission statement lead the day today. What do you mean by that? Small bets. So when you know what business you're in, for us, everything's fans first, but we need to constantly experiment. And we try things. Many have failed. I mentioned salute to underwear night. And um, yeah, what was salute to underwear night? So we actually, anybody who wore underwear on the outside got a free ticket. This was back in the day. It was the most unfamily-friendly night we've ever had. I mean, it was, it was terrible. I mean, it was gross, all right? 50 fans showed up, but in the media showed up, which was not good. 50 fans with their underwear on the outside in the media. Uh, was, That's not the press day you want. Yeah, and, and then, I mean, flatulence fun night where we gave away whoopee cushions and had a farting contest and then bean in oh, contest. I mean, again, we tried things, but a lot of them <laughs> failed. Um, the world's largest tickets I talk about in the book. You know, again, whatever's normal. We created tickets that were like the size of huge posters, and we thought they were really cool. Our fans hated them. They're like, what are we supposed to do with these giant tickets? <laughs> I think that's awesome. But it done. I think what's cool, it, it built our brand, and our brand is to try things that are new, unique, and outrageous. So we've learned from all these. I mean, we have a, a beer festival. It's called Tap in the Morning Beer Fest because you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. So it starts at 9 a.m. The beer fest is at 9 a.m. And the game is that afternoon or evening, right? No, we don't have a game. We just do a morning beer fest. (laughs) And the first year, no one showed up, but now it's a big event. And so I think you got to constantly be trying new events and innovating, and that's what we're constantly trying these new things and pushing the envelope. And you don't care if you fail, do you? I mean, obviously, you want things to succeed, but what do you do after underwear night? You're going to bed that night going, oh, heavenly days. Oh, back then when it happened, I was miserable, but now I'm like, (laughs) that's part of the story. I mean, people love it. So I'm like, if it's a failure, does it at least create a story? If you create a story, then that X builds your brand. So I look at it as a marketing now. So I've changed my way of looking at it. There you go. Okay, the long game. You always want to keep the long game in mind. You talk about this on page 176. It comes down to the three Ps. Patience, persistence, and perseverance. Uh, don't expect to get rich quick. And we literally use the same analogy you use. We just think about farming. Yes. You got to put seeds in the soil. You got to harvest the soil. You got to pray for rain. Yes. What the inverse we paint is I tell our staff be patient in what you want for yourself, but be impatient in how much you give to others. Hmm. Can you tell me what does that look like? So when I first came up, it was all about I was trying to build myself, become this GM, become very successful. It wasn't until I started focusing completely on our staff, completely on our people, that everything else started taking care of itself. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like every day I'm thinking, I'm walking around, what can I do for our people? What does this workplace look like? And we've had zero turnover since then, which is crazy for millennials. We have all 22 yeah. to 26 years old. I mean, Don, we've let them dictate their salary to us That's before. Awesome. It's crazy. So I'm trying to think about how can it be the best workplace for them? And be patient in that, in the sense, work hard on that, and then you'll be patient in what the success that happens to you. And so we understand we're the long game. I think we realize we're a startup, but not every year are we going to have seven-figure huge growth. 
it's only been three years of the Savannah Bananas. And in the scheme of things, that's nothing. So it's really incredible. It's crazy. And we've sold out every game, but there's so much more we want to create. We want to change the game of baseball. We want to make a bigger difference. So now I'm impatient on how much I focus on the culture and our fans. You know, that's what it is. You focus on the who, not the what. And that's kind of the, been the thing for us. And I'm playing the long game there. So then everything else takes care of itself. How much is the giant vision, we want to change the game of baseball, affect your team morale when they realize this is bigger than just the Savannah Bananas or this is bigger than just free corn dogs? This is, we're trying to change a culture. We talk about it all the time. And that's, we you know, a part of simplifying. Everything for us is fans first. It's fans yeah. first, and always. And our big dragon that we're trying to slay is change the game of baseball. Oh, Every week in so staff great. chats, I share the vision. I go, guys, here's where we are and here's what we're doing. We're this far away. We're this far away. Because you'll hear in soon time, we're going to make a big, big announcement. And we're getting steps there to do it. And I'll tell you, it galvanizes the group. It fires us up. And we have purpose and passion while we're doing Because we're not just selling tickets and corn dogs, as you said. We're doing something much bigger to make an impact. And that's what I believe young people are driven by. It's purpose. It's yeah. what's the impact they're doing. And that's been the big thing that's brought us together. Jesse, a big problem with a lot of marketing messaging is we're focusing on ourselves. You do an amazing job making your customer the hero. Tell us some stories about just exactly what that looks like for the Savannah Bananas. It comes down to empowering our people, whether they're interns, full-time staff, to go all out to deliver that fans first experience. And I'll never forget our first season. You know, we had a young intern, Barry was his name, and Someone, a family bought eight tickets to a game. And after every single person buys a ticket, we call and thank them, but we couldn't get in touch with them. <laughs> That's unbelievable. So we kept trying. Finally, we were able to get in touch with the father. And he said, I'm so sorry. You know, we're not going to be able to make the game. We have seven kids and my wife bought the tickets, but she just tragically died. Oh, goodness. And Barry came to me as an intern and said, Jesse, we have to do something. And I said, 100%. He goes, let's give the kids the best experience they've ever had. And so he called the dad back and said, we'd love to have you. We're going to give you a VIP experience. We want to make this special. And I'll never forget, Barry, as an intern, got a jersey with the mother's name on it, the amount of years that they were married, the husband and the wife. And we brought seven kids to the game. When they got there, we gave them the best seats in the house. We brought all the players up. We delivered bats, signed balls. The players hung out with the kids before the game. The family ended up staying for the entire game. Afterwards, the father said, told to us, that was the last gift the mother gave to the kids. We couldn't imagine a better gift. That's just incredible. And you've empowered your entire people to think this way, to, to literally go out and listen to the stories of the fans and make them the hero of the story. Yeah, we listen. You know, I, after one game, a big man with a mustache came up to me and gave me a huge bear hug. And he goes, thank you so much. And I go, what was that for? And he goes, my mother and I haven't talked in years, but she came to your games and watched the players dance and watched all the fun. She now comes to every game and we sit together. You help bring our relationship together. Well, that's incredible. And it's those things that gives us a sense of purpose that we share over and over again with our people. We're not just selling tickets. We're part of something that's making a difference in people's lives. And it makes all the hours, all the time, all the effort to sell out every single game 100% worth it. And that's what it's all about for us. JJ, it was a good year. So fun. And we're, and we're just gearing up for an even better I one. I know. It's good. We already have so much on the calendar for next year on the podcast and everything. It's, yeah. I'm excited for everybody to hear. Yeah. As always, JJ, it's wonderful doing business with you. Oh, likewise, Don. <laughs> this is, uh, this is one of the great- You're the highlight of my year. Yeah. No, I think that was France. You already oh, yeah, established I already said, that. Dang it. You were the You're highlight of my second. year. You're a close second. That's right. You know, I do tend to love people more than they love me. <laughs> it's been my curse. <laughs> it is. You are a mm -hmm. lover. I'm like Hillary Clinton. I just have too much love. <laughs> too much love. Too much everyone. love. <laughs> <laughs> I think she said that in a, in a campaign once and got ridiculed for it. You say it all the time. I so, do. Yeah. 
I just have too much love. <laughs> speaking of too much love, yeah. I want to thank Chad Snavely. Yay, Chad. Chad is our podcast producer. He gets the ums out <laughs> yeah, he gets of everything of we do. that we say. He gets, when we go off on <laughs> stupid rabbit trails, mm-hmm. he gets from them. He probably has a file that would end our careers. Oh, 100%. There's zero doubt in my mind. <laughs> zero doubt in my mind. Chad, we love you. Love you, Chad. We trust you're, you. You're the highlight of my year. Mm, there's an envelope full of money in your mailbox. <laughs> Susie Consoli uh-huh. is our producer. She's the one who does all the prep sheets for us. Yes. She reads every book. She is a sponge when it comes to learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's probably now our smartest person on staff because she reads Not even every- probably. <laughs> <laughs> she reads every book and prepares us for these interviews. Susie, thank you so much. And also Tim Schurer. Tim, Tim you're the, the highlight COO of my year. of the company, but still slips into these podcasts and makes sure that they're done right and makes sure that we don't go off the rails. <laughs> Again. Tim, thank you so much. <laughs> Steven Reese is new on staff. He uh, works mostly in video, but because he's such a good storyteller and so amazing at story mm-hmm. structure, he sits on the podcast and says, hey, that wasn't interesting. Can you do it over? Yeah. And, and then Stephen highlighted my year. There you are. <laughs> you know, you only get to say that once. Really? Well, I, I keep getting reminded of new highlights. Mm. Richard Goff. The most highlight of my year. <laughs> Richard Goff has been on staff for about two days. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which was a highlight. And yet he is taking over uh, in many aspects on making the podcast more interesting. The podcast should get much better. <laughs> Richard comes to us from a company called Tipsy Elves uh-huh. in San Diego. He was incredible. Incredibly influential in scaling up this multi-million dollar company that sells, quote, ugly Christmas sweaters. Mm-hmm. And uh, Richard was responsible for a lot of that. Also a graduate of Pepperdine. He studied film there. Mm-hmm. We are surrounding ourselves by story structure I experts. Know. So we should get better. Always. And so we're excited about next year. So excited. Thanks for growing with us. Uh, we hope that your company had a phenomenal, phenomenal year. I think we're in for a fantastic 2019. I think the economy is still wait. going to be robust. And I, I think you got to take advantage of this year. Mm-hmm. Grow your company this year. Come up with a plan. Apply a lot of the stuff that uh, you've heard on this podcast. Come see us at a workshop. Uh, we really want to help you grow. And we want you to grow with us. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's EP, Dive Deep, Hushed, on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. God bless you, and Happy, Happy New, New Year! Year.